and it's more a network, the business school, than somewhere you really learn real life, teach you much more than, uh, than school. I was attracted by money at the beginning and I wanted to make lots of money. We wanted to create a community-driven company committed to the environment. We had no risk except to lose 30,000, which is the price of a car. A mentor is probably 25% of the success of picture for us. It's uh, we respect to fail. Welcome to Sports and Outdoor Mentors. In this episode, I chat with Julien Durand, the co-founder and CEO of Picture Organic Clothing. Picture was founded 15 years ago in Annecy, France by three friends, Julien, Jeremy and Vincent. Today, it employs more than 90 people, is sold in more than 40 countries around the world and generated 50 million euros of sales in 2022. We chat about the challenges and opportunities of leading a purpose-driven business, the value of a mentor, and their approach to failure, plus much, much more. Before we get into it, though, I have one favor to ask. Please hit the subscribe button. This really helps us grow the channel so we can continue to elevate the content and bring you insights from more amazing leaders within the sports and outdoor industry. Thanks for your support, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Julia. So if you think back 18 to 20 years ago when you were in business school, did you imagine that you would be sitting here today leading a brand like Picture back in those days? So I was imagining myself uh, leading a company because I always been an, an entrepreneur and that has always been my dream to start my own business. I don't really to, let's say, uh, be managed by somebody and I've always been leading projects. So part of the way I was thinking my life was uh, working on my leadership. I didn't imagine that the success of our company would come so fast and managing people would come so fast too and you're never ready to manage people. And I think that's the toughest part of our uh, entrepreneurship life and, um, and leading a company and uh, starting a business I would say is perhaps just 10% of the success and 90% is people and managing people. And uh, when you are at the business school, nobody tells you that and you really learn on the field and you don't really learn at school. Yeah. And when you, so that's a really interesting point. Uh, and I, yeah, I completely agree. I think that's the the biggest part of any leadership role is is leading the team, leading people. Um, but when you look back at business school, are there things that you learn there that you have been able to put into action that you think, okay, yeah, that was that maybe not that lesson was valuable, but generally anything that you think, okay, yeah, that that was valuable time for me. I would say that uh, the value of your business school comes mainly on the name of your business school because it opened doors to start your first internship, to create your first connection in business life. And then it opened doors to start your own business or to be hired by a company. Or, and, uh, and it's more a network, the business school, than somewhere you really learn lots of, lots of things. So you create connection with people, you create projects, but all the projects you do with associations, 
teach me much more than the teachers themselves. And uh, I did my uh, two last year of business school uh, part-time with Coca-Cola. So part-time at school, part-time uh, with the company. And what I learned from business and the basis I've established to start picture come from my background at Coca-Cola and then Origina Schweppes. And uh, I would say that real life teach you much more than, uh, than school. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so you mentioned there your time at Coke and, and Schweppes and Orangina. So I think if somebody didn't know you and didn't know that, they might be surprised to hear that that's where you started. So why, why did you start there? What's, what was the kind of thought process that you had at the time? Mm, I was looking for a purpose. I think like most of the people, but uh, that was a big motivation for me to uh, involve myself into something which gave me sense. And what we call the per capita is how many liters habitant from a country drinks every year was, let's say, the main goal to achieve. And uh, it didn't really resonate for me. And I was attracted by money at the beginning and I wanted to make lots of money. And uh, when I started, I did money. And I didn't find myself uh, very happy. And uh, I was spending all that money going back and forth to the mountain to join my uh, childhood friends, to go snowboarding, skiing, skateboarding. And at the end, I was making more money, but it was spent in transport. <laughs> so, so when I called Jeremy uh, to ask him if he were ready to start the brand we thought about for many years, and Jeremy answered me quickly that... He was an architect. If he, he, if he were leaving his family business, it would have been just to create something completely different and new, fully committed into sustainability by making everything we do in a sustainable way. And uh, if it's not possible to do it that way, we don't do it. And that's the baseline journey. Uh, I say, uh, highlighted me like an elevator presentation on the project. And I quickly said, I'm in, because there was that vision of making it different and new. And the connection I have with Jeremy has been the main power of uh, picture. Okay. Vincent has joined us uh, in a second time because he was really specialized in uh, supply chain and IT. And uh, he was part of the skills which was required. But Jeremy was the vision. And uh, as soon as he gave me that vision, it has changed my mind. And I projected myself into the company by bringing something new into, into the market. Because Jeremy, as an architect, is redesigning the products you know, with a different approach than classic fashion designer. So we came in the market with a new design, that new philosophy, which, was, which didn't exist at that time. And a new way of thinking because we were already thinking inclusivity. And it's not inclusivity, main woman. It was first of all inclusivity in sports, in outdoors. We didn't want to create a ski company or a snowboard company or a hiking company. We wanted to create a community-driven company committed to the environment. And that's really uh, how those like three pillars made us different at that time yeah. and uh, pushed us to uh, to put all our energy in the project. But the, the timing is is really interesting because when you know we look back now to two thousand and eight, you know it was the the 
the kind of the height of the second largest, largest kind of global economic crisis. So that was a pretty brave decision, though, at the time, because I think you you all invested, I think, 30,000 euros or something at the yeah. start. And it was most of our economy, yeah. our three years uh, working experience. Yeah. And uh, so we spent all that money, but we didn't have kids, houses, loans. So we had no risk except to lose 30,000, which is the price of a car. So we would have lost one car. And uh, the risk was very limited. And um, in 2008, even if it was a global crisis, as a citizen, the media, the newspaper talk about crisis, but yourself, you don't really realize because you work, you make your money, you buy your bread, your butter, and you eat. So for us, it was just a starting point of a project. And, uh, and facing that crisis was quite a big strength for us because while the crisis is at its highest point, people are looking for newness and solutions to, to let's say, reinvent themselves. And we were part of the solutions they picked and they said, oh, there is a new brand with those kind of new feelings, new philosophy, new way of thinking. Let's try something new. So the crisis was a strain for us and not really a weakness. When we started the project, we met people which helped us to jump three, four steps in one jump. Like George Pussy from Jonathan and Fletcher. It's an innovation, uh, innovative and uh, pattern-making company dedicated for outerwear garments. And uh, George introduced me to all the right suppliers, the right fabric suppliers. Uh, the, so the connections went very fast. We had a very high-end product at our first production without any customer issue, which usually happen when, happen when you are a new brand. Uh, we met people like uh, Jérôme Elbaz, who was a French manager for North Face. He has a background on global sales for Billabong and some other companies. Salomon too, uh, and he helped me to build the price strategy, to have a global price strategy, and to make sure that because the trend online was going very fast, but 2008 was the beginning, uh, companies with global price didn't really exist, but uh, he pushed me to start the company with a global pricing and not with a country pricing, which has really helped for the future of the, of the business and the company. So most of the people we met also thanks to uh, Outdoor Sports Valley, which is an uh, outdoor association uh, near Annecy. So it's, uh, it's an association with 400 members from different companies from the outdoors. And that connection has also helped. They have a, what they call incubators. And we were part of that incubators to get some uh, advice, free advice, because we, you don't have money and people do it because they want to do it. Uh, from very uh, from very skilled people, and that's really how we have been able to pass the three years very fast and to become profitable after year two, which usually takes three to five years. So yeah, the start the start was easier than the than uh, 2013. In 2013. Uh, in 2013, we started to hire people. Okay. And from a startup, we became a company with employees. And we have discovered what 
employees are looking for, what they are not looking for, how they commit to the company and how they commit just to themselves. And uh, you need a purpose, you need to give sense. And uh, as far as we had more than 15 employees, everything has changed. From zero to 15, we were all friends. We were hanging out together, doing sports together. And at 15, there was a layer between people and there was managers. And uh, we started to have some political actions from uh, people. We started to have to deal with uh, people who want to increase their salaries, their skills, their power. And uh, it's easy to manage compromise when everybody is at the bottom line of salaries, for example. Yeah. And uh, they are looking for more in their life, which is totally normal. Yeah. And uh, But we didn't think it would come so fast. Yeah. But going back to um, your other founders, so the three of you, you already talked about Vincent, Vincent and Jeremy, you have very complementary um, skills and backgrounds. Was that always a goal? Did you always, was it kind of always in your mind to, to work together, at least for with you and Jeremy? I know you said you brought in Vincent later, or was it a happy coincidence that it worked out like that? Uh... When I called Jeremy, I've, I've known forever his skills in creativity, in uh, his, the way that his vision has always been very interesting, even in our group of friends. He was a kind of trendsetter in terms of trend for the, the brand he was wearing, the, the board brand he started to use when nobody was knowing the brands in terms of music. He's very, he loved music. So he was always picking the new band. And uh, so I trusted Jeremy a lot and uh, his vision and the quality of his uh, hard skills was for me uh, something I don't have and I needed to start a project. Mm. So I didn't want to be associated with somebody like me. So he was the one to start something or not to do anything. And uh, Vincent was a friend of the group. And uh, he was into the project since the beginning. But in terms of uh, skills, I would say that uh, he took over IT because that's his uh, skills. But operation was not his skills. And because I was taking over marketing, sales, and production, and I was the only one speaking English. So by the way, I was the only one uh, able to take over those uh, departments. Vincent took the rest and had to learn on the field mm. because he had no skills in the operations. And uh, he learned from a mentor who is a 12% shareholder in the company called Claude de Mota. He's partnering Vincent's father with also 12% shareholder. And uh, he was the CEO of André Chaussure. Uh, he was a finance manager uh, from a company. He got uh, 100 employees, sold the company to KPMG. So he was a big entrepreneur and he is very good at finance and operations. And uh, he mentored Vincent. Sometimes it has been very hard because uh, he's not laughing a lot. He's very straight to the point, very hard with the words he's using. But uh, Vincent, for the first five years, learned a lot from him. It was much better than a business school. And, uh, and then Vincent fly himself uh, to run all those categories. 
and those departments. And then we have structured the company all together. And those complementary skills is perhaps the best uh, strength we have all together. Usually when I'm listening to some advisors, they, all, they always say, oh, company with three owners, always uh, bankrupt or two owners uh, are kicking out the other one. And there is always conflict. For us, because we depend on each other and nobody is uh, doing the job of the other one, we have to work together. So sometimes there is some tension because when operations are not as smooth as expected and the, the customers complain, we fight together because uh, we need to supply the consumer the best way. But at the end, we all work for the consumer. So we have the same goal. And uh, also in terms of uh, vision in our entrepreneurship, we didn't do picture to be rich. We did picture to work from our passion, which was uh, snowboarding, skateboarding, and surfing. Okay. Yeah, interesting. No, but it's it's worked out really well. And it's what you said about uh, uh, Vincent's mentor and, you know, that being better than any business school. I will maybe come back to that a little bit later with regards to you because, yeah, I think, uh, I think they're mentors are somehow undervalued and, and not let's say utilized enough i would say but that's really really interesting and as you as uh, you said a mentor is probably 25 percent of the success of picture for us because we being very open-minded and uh, open to listen to people with experience has helped us to move forward faster has helped us to take the right decisions even sometimes when there is a key decision to take, we call some partners and even some competitors sometimes. And uh, when you talk about Romain Millet, you met him yesterday. Uh, we had some questions with China. He has lived for 20 years in China. Uh, we had a, a meal together. He gave us three, four advice about China we didn't know. And from his advice, I think we took the right decisions to start to launch picture into that market. And even if we are competitors, we are all good friends in that industry, which is very positive. And this is probably why we all love to work in that industry. There is not like animals who want to bite each other. Yeah. And, uh, and at the end, we want to grow the cake of the outdoor industry and to find our spot in it. But, uh, but we all compete in the same direction. So. So that's something also very positive. You mentioned earlier on that you, between the, the three of you, the three co-founders, you all have equal ownership stakes. And you said that, you know, because of your different skill sets and experience, it enables you to address problems and challenges in a, in a different way. But I, I, there must've been times though, where, where you all disagreed. Or, or, or maybe not, but I would imagine there have been some times. And how do you, how do you address that? Because also you're friends as well, so it could be could be quite difficult. I would say that our friendship has been has degraded with the company, and now for 15 years we all have started our family. We all have kids, so we have a vision of life which is different from each other. And, uh, and also because our family, for all of us, are our priority, we change a little bit directions and we don't spend all our time 
going back and forth to the mountain and uh, chilling on the on the slope. Yeah. So so visions of life of life have changed and it has helped us to create some key moments to share all uh, positive and bad vibes to make sure that uh, let's say quarterly we don't leave stuff uh, to degrade and to okay. polluate uh, the company. Yeah. So we have always been very uh, we have open mouth. Yeah. And uh, and we really talk a lot to each other. Yeah. Then how we deal with some uh, situation where we don't agree, it's mainly based on uh, compromise. And when I say compromise, it means that uh, we don't take a decision as far as everybody don't agree with the decision because we have to hold the decision and to transmit the decision to all the people in the company. Yeah. And, uh, and the biggest weakness of that model is when we miss our quarterly meeting, we miss some informations and then we are running the company like three different identities. Mm. The part which is which is uh, managed by Vincent will have different information from the one I manage, from the one Jeremy is managing. So we know that uh, we have to meet, and sometimes we forget or we do not have time, or and uh, we really feel that the employee uh, are very. Uh, how do we say the? The basis of the company became unstable as far as we don't share the same level of information. Yeah. We have to speak with one only voice. And even if there is three mouths, it has to be one voice one voice. And uh and we have learned we have learned uh that all our decisions have to be taken together and then we have to talk to people and we don't have to show to the staff our doubts, uh our thinkings. And as soon as we have done that in the past, it has created uh, freakness. Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh, that makes complete sense. So those those quarterly meetings are pretty vital then for the stability of the business. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But even if we know that, sometimes we miss those. So because we are all traveling, we have our daily uh, issue to deal with. And as an entrepreneur, the... Let's say the hardest part to manage, the hardest uh, part to manage, is uh, trying to think out of the, bo of the box and not trying to deal with the problem we have now. And uh, it's always uh, grateful for an entrepreneur to find solutions for your employee. He has a problem, you find the solution, and. Uh, it gives you a direct feedback, direct uh, compliment. Yeah. But at the end, you are always dealing with what's happened for tomorrow, but never dealing with what will happen in one year or two years. And uh, it's very important to step back and to step back all together, not one of us or two of us, to make sure that we transmit the same vision. Yeah. And this is what we don't do very well. And we know we have to work on it yeah, and even if you know, sometimes you don't do. You mentioned earlier on um, the OSV, uh, yeah. uh, so Outdoor Sports Valley, and obviously 
you're here with your co-founders leading this business on a daily basis, but I know you also participate actively within OSV as well. So why? I mean, why, why do you do that? Why do you give up your time for that? And what does it bring to you? OSV gave us a lot. And now, after 10 years, we were profitable. We have started and we are running a nice company. And there is some new entrepreneur like us, uh, 10 years after, who wants to live what we have lived. And I think it's time also for us to give back. And if we can give back and help, uh, we grow the cake of the outdoor all together. And, uh, and it's all, I think, and that's our values. If somebody gives you, you will give back one time. Even if it's not tomorrow, you will give back. Yeah. And, uh, and being part of OSV, uh, is a way to give back. And, uh, and it's also a way to meet people from the industry to keep connected to your, competitors which could be your partner and uh and it's always nice to share some like big datas some information about customers but uh i didn't do it just for business connections it's perhaps 20 percent of my motivation 80 percent is the give back because you give lots of hours for entrepreneurship for uh there is some services so yeah. I'm part of the sustainability yeah. uh, department yeah. and we try also to give all our knowledge to give informations to push brands to be part of it and to understand what are the challenges which challenges are the one we can deal all together we are also part of EOG one example which is uh, very simple we talk about energy transition to fight climate change which means that we have to wipe out fossil fuel from most of our use. And uh, energy transition can't be done with some big yarn factory, for example, alone, because picture itself represents perhaps 0.2% of the business of that company. But if all the outdoor industry could uh, focus on one goal, manage the energy transition of um, our Taiwanese uh, supplier for yarn, 90% of us use the same yarn from the same company. If we push him to change and we finance a little bit based on the volume we represent in that company, uh, we could accelerate the changes. And you just need a chef d'orchestre. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the chef d'orchestre is EOG. Yeah. And thanks to them, we are able to lead that project we would never have led it uh, alone. As a leader of a, a company like Picture, which is, which is what, around 100 employees now? Yeah, 90. 90. Um, what do you consider to be your most important task as the leader of that business? Transparency. Okay. And uh, we play against the big players, but we are a small player. And what uh, made Picture very unique is the fact that we are like a family. Because 90 compared to 1,000, if we compare to our neighbor Salomon, sure. uh, the company culture is completely different. And uh, what we have, and most of those big companies doesn't, is transparency. So I was talking about communication before, but it's also uh, how we communicate transparently on every topic without any uh, taboo. Yeah. And, uh, and what people really appreciate is the fact that uh, we don't hide anything. 
even with journalists. And that, that's a company mindset. Yeah. Don't hide anything. Tell everybody. And if you are not proud of, your, of what you've done, don't do it. And we, we assume our, also, we really assume what we do. So if we do it, there is a reason. If we do a mistake, we assume it's a mistake. And we, we have to accept it. And we have some big values in the company, which also help uh, for that. It's uh, we respect to fail. And failing is a way to improve, is a way to succeed later, is a way to learn. So we push people not to fail all the time, of course, but to accept to fail. Yeah. But, but uh, what I don't respect is people who don't try and don't take risk. Because if they don't take risk, uh, they just have to manage some daily tasks, but I don't want to give them any responsibility. Sure, yeah. And if by taking risk, it's a mistake, let's understand why and let's not do it later and let's try to find some solution and let's uh, learn from it. Yeah, well, interesting. Maybe a little bit on the same theme. Is there something that you, that you know now that you wish you would have known 15 years ago? when you started? To be honest, from my education and from my sports background, I was a rugby player for 15 years, playing okay. for Clermont. Okay. Uh, when you play rugby, you try. Sometimes a big tackle come, <laughs> you fall, you get hurt, but the whole team is behind you. The whole team will take back the ball and you will play again and try again. And sometimes you pass, sometimes you don't, sometimes you put a try, sometimes you give the try to your partner. And it's a nice image to, to transfer to company because uh, trying is a way to go to the success. And if you don't try, people will run over you and, and you will not do anything. Yeah. So... I think uh, my rugby background has really helped and my parents, which are two teachers, one economic teacher, uh, okay. my, my mother is a teacher at elementary school. And they, in terms of education, they, they have always pushed their uh, students to try and to fail and to learn. So uh, it's part of my background and I think that's something I try to transmit because uh, it builds you stronger. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But as a as an Englishman talking to a Frenchman, I would rather not talk about rugby at the moment. So <laughs> let's maybe move on from that. So something a little bit different. What's your relationship like with technology? How do you do? You use a lot of technology day to day, either for professionally or personally. Personally, I'm a gear geek. Okay. It's uh, totally not in line with the brain value uh, when you talk about sobriety and everything. But I love technologies. But compared to Jeremy, my partner, he hates technologies. He likes simple things. So uh, in a daily uh, way of uh, management and way of life, it's a question of compromise. I'm trying to push the team to use better uh, the IA because now... There is no limits with IR. It's very cheap. So you don't have to pay a lot today. And there is lots of value to save time. So I'm trying to push our staff to use it more, to learn about it. And we have to be pioneer using the IA today. Uh, 
because as a startup, it will help to accelerate lots of processes. Uh, then, if if when we talk uh, technologies, uh, we talk about uh, thinking on how we can implement technologies in our garments. That's something we are totally uh, far from, because when you talk about sovereignty, and I really respect Jeremy's vision with it, uh, technologies can't really be recycled. There is uh, it breaks easily. It doesn't long last. You have to deal with lots of warranty and everything. So this is not where we aim to stand. So when we talk about technologies, it's more technologies around sustainability. So we are working on two huge projects. Uh, one uh, about circularity and how we can use uh, fibers made from recycled garments and how we can make our garments recyclable to make sure that uh, we don't create virgin fibers to produce garments, but we use a kind of closed circle of uh, raw material to reproduce some newness. Yeah. And uh, also, we have another project with Carbioz. Carbioz is uh, it's not a small startup because uh, they really accelerated with more than $200 uh, uh, million dollar fund leverage. Okay. Uh, that company found a way with enzyme to degrade uh, polyester fibers into uh, polyethylene on one side and PTA on the other side to come back to the virgin fiber, to the virgin component. So that's, uh, that's something uh, we are onboarding with, so we are onboarding with the project. We are not uh, part of the leading team where uh, brands like Patagonia, L'Oreal, Pepsi Cola, are really involved into, but uh, we are some uh, small members, but we are part of it. So when we talk innovations, we really focus on uh, sustainability behind innovations, and uh, but not on technologies to have a heater on your jacket. Or when you think about the industry as a whole, what do you think are the biggest challenges it's going to face over the next three to five years and maybe even longer? So we, we all know when we talk about sobriety, uh, we have any way to produce less. We produce too much compared to what the consumer can buy. And uh, the challenge from every shareholders is to get some new market shares, make more profits, so produce more, create more waste. So we have to find some alternatives to be more regenerative, which means the which means that the question is how we make sure that we keep our business sustainable by producing less, better, with more durability. At Picture, we thought about different approach like leasing, closing, like uh, renting, like uh, if you can sell some usage instead of sell some products, it can be interesting. Ten people could be uh, users for uh, for a rent pen for bike packing because you don't bike 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 pack every weekend. You go bike packing for one week a year, so you don't need the full set. So perhaps we could rent a set, and it could uh, supply ten people. So we make the same amount of money, but we produce one outfit instead of ten. Yeah. So that's a way to go to sovereignty. So that's just one way, but we have to explore some solution to keep. Some pro to keep profitable company, 
but to produce less and better. Our industry is not the worst if you look at what's happening in the fast fashion side. Mm. This is where we all have to fight against. If you look at the growth of uh, Shine, the Chinese company, uh, in 20 years, they grow from zero to more than $10 billion. Patagonia, in 40 years, grow from zero to $1 billion. And uh, Patagonia has lived an organic growth for 40 years, while Shine has accelerated through shitty products, which doesn't long last, which have uh, a lifetime of one month, And uh, and they just they are just making money. They are just thinking about the future of our planet, and and they have so good communication that they create needs all the time. Mm. So we're working, for example, with Armod uh, Klima. So Armod Klima is an association. We try to do some lobby uh, at the European Union and uh, French um, minister to push some new law to regulate. Uh, the production of textile to regulate uh, some tax for products which doesn't long last. To re for example, we push on have um, have uh, a fee for every product you sell on the market which you can't repair. And if the brand offer reparation or lifetime reparation options, uh, you don't pay the tax. So the only way to reach solutions is to attack the wallet. Yeah, 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 for sure. And if you don't attack the wallet of those big uh, fast fashion companies, you don't really create solutions. Yeah. And and sorry, say what was the name of the organization that you're doing that with? En mode climat. Okay. And they work with, I guess, several different companies. We are 500 members. Okay. All uh, textile brands. Okay. Most of them are French brands. Okay. And uh, we have some uh, partners and some other associations in different countries. And all together, uh, we are financing some uh, jobs, yeah. some lobbyists. Exactly, yeah. Do lobbying. Yeah. And uh, it's impressive how those big companies can uh, penetrate the... <laughs> The ministers can penetrate uh, the European Union uh, decision maker uh, organization, yeah, and uh, and they know who to talk to, and uh, if you want to change things, you have to change it politically and economically. Yeah, politically with the law and economically by making the consumer understand what he should do and should not do. Yeah, because at the end, the consumer has the power. Yeah. If there is no consumer, there is no consumption. Absolutely. That's interesting. Well, I'll, I'll make sure I put the the link to their website in the show notes because I think that's, uh, that, I've not heard of that before. I think that's really interesting. It has been created by uh, Julia. She's the owner of uh, Loom. Okay. Loom is a very sustainable French brand and uh, she has embraced a network So at the beginning, we were only 40. Yeah. Now it's 500 brands in four years and uh, all committed uh, to regulate. And uh, Mie uh, is now joining the, yeah. the fight. Great. Thinking about um, launching a brand with sustainability and even kind of a regenerative approach to business, You know, you 
and I, I understand obviously Jeremy was a, a key driving force behind that decision, but of course that's not the easiest way to start a business and it, and it gives you, I'm sure, lots of challenges from a cost point of view of materials, of productions, etc. Do you feel you're yet able to kind of mitigate those higher costs or do you think that it... So, so we've known since the beginning that... Uh will be challenging, especially with the cost. So our vision was to produce the garment at a higher cost, not to spend money into marketing, keep the marketing budget as the additional cost of producing organically, and uh, dealing with the consumer to show him that the marketing value is into the product and not into the marketing. So we wanted to create that kind of uh, break-even where uh, there is no marketing and uh, every, every ad value is into the product. It's been working very well till 2013 because at that time, Facebook was free. It was just the beginning of Instagram. So to create community and to reach our consumer, we had some easy uh, tool to, uh, to talk to our consumer. Yeah. And then... Those network, those um, social media became uh, it's painful. Became painful, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and we had to start to pay to reach our target, to reach our consumer, to reach our communities, and to reach uh, wider communities too. And then uh, our model have had to change. So for five years, we have lose margin every year, but uh, our growth was so high, more than hundred percent every year. Uh, we were balancing the um, the lack of uh, margin sure. with the growth. Yeah. And uh, while COVID came, the growth stopped. Yeah. And uh, and then we had to uh, reinvent ourselves in terms of business model, and uh, and to reduce some costs in some part, to uh, accelerate some uh, new development in the other side. And, uh, for example, moving from uh, recycling to biosource uh, has increased the price. So we moved from recycling polyester to biosource polyester in 2018. Okay. And uh, we were looking for some circular polyester. And the process of circularity is 30% cheaper than uh, biosource. So we pushed hard to go faster on those projects to rebalance the margin. So we have really accelerated some uh, leverage to reach a better margin. And uh, also, after COVID, the inflation has, um, let's say, uh, reorganized the map of where to produce. Okay. For example, Turkey with cotton is becoming so expensive compared to five years ago and they have uh, inflation of 40-50% per year. Uh, it was 90% of our cotton production. We had to move to India and to Mauritius Island to find some reasonable price to continue to manage our lifestyle business. Because in Turkey, it was not even possible to sell a product with a margin. And that reorganization has also helped us to reset, to reset some new facilities to reorganize some, let's say, products construction 
to make sure that uh, we can continue to sell at the right price with the right margin. And uh, it took three years to reorganize after COVID our, uh, it's not supply chain, our buying chain. Yeah. And, and now uh, we have a model which is uh, sustainable again. Yeah. Okay, great. Great. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I understood that uh, you, um, you weren't investing in brand marketing, let's say, at the start, um, and that you were kind of focused more on training the sales associates, etc. But that's interesting. I didn't know uh, from a business model point of view. That's really interesting. And yeah, that, those last few years must have been and, very challenging. And what was key when we launched the brand? We wanted to sell products of organic product at the price of non-organic product. Because at that time, from a survey we did ourselves, so we didn't pay for anything, we were in Les Deux Alpes. Yeah. In summer, we were doing summer camp uh, every summer. And we did some questionnaire to people uh, on the chairlift, on the gondola. And we asked them, those uh, organic products are important for you? Yes, of course. Will you pay? Uh, would you pay more for it for closing? Not at all. Not even 1% more. Because for them, it was more fashion uh, aspect of uh, the project the product than uh, a commitment. And uh, this is why from that constat, we said, okay, 98% of people don't want to pay even 1% more. So we have to sell organic product at the price of non-organic product. So let's save money on marketing. We don't do marketing. We focus on social media. And after COVID, what has happened from our previous uh, discussion, uh, lots and lots of private label and new brands launched themselves during COVID on Instagram. So Instagram became also uh, a battlefield to launch new brands on every territories, every categories, and, uh, and it's becoming even more competitive. So we had to reinvent ourselves to, to recreate margin for picture, but also to recreate ourselves on social media to make sure that our voice is not lost into uh, the voice of all those newcomers. One thing I wanted to ask you, one bit of advice maybe for some of our uh, audience or listeners, and I'm sure there are lots of employees of other brands that those brands are maybe not either as sustainably minded or sustainably minded at all. And I'm sure a lot of employees are frustrated by that and, and wish they could help influence the company to, to be more sustainable. If you were to advise, give advice to those people about how they could maybe address that with their managers, their stakeholders, even the owners, what advice would you give? First of all, the project has to be leaded by, by one person. So we call him the, sustainable, the sustainability manager at Picture, but you can give every name you want. That person has to be part of the direction, not the marketing. Yeah, so the man. And in most of the brand, that person is part of the marketing. It kills the strategy. So he has to be, or she has to be, the right arm of the CEO. And the CEO has to embrace the project himself. Because if he is not convinced, nothing will happen in the company because it's always a question of PL. And if into the PL he includes a line for it, the company 
will have to deal with it and you will start to transform some behavior, some habits into the company. But it starts from the top and it goes to the bottom, even if the bottom is very demanding. And uh, my main advice is that uh, the sustainability manager must be part of the direction. And around the table, when we take the big decision of the company, we have human resources, finance, operations, sales, human resources, and sustainability. And it's part, we called that before the big five. Now it's the big six because that position is key. And the decisions you take with uh, finance, sales, and everything have to include a part of uh, sustainable, sustainable vision behind. Mm. Otherwise, you always go to your comfort zone and it's always easier to do as, as usual and uh, not to change. Yeah. But if you if there was a situation where the CEO didn't believe in the approach, if you, for example, but it, let's say if I said to you, okay, I want you to convince a CEO, a, a member of OSV, for example, let's say, you know, how would, what would be your, let's say, main argument to try and convince another CEO to have a more sustainable approach? It depends on where he challenges himself. If his goal in life is just to make money, I will never convince him because he's focused on making money. But if he wants to use his company as a way to make money, of course, uh, it's a capitalism. Uh, it's capitalism, but uh, you want to have a positive impact on people and you think that your company has a value for people and not only uh, is not only a business uh, moneymaker, then you can start to convince him because thinking sustainability, it's not only the product. The product is 1% of a sustainable vision behind a company. It's also uh, how people feel good, uh, the equity between uh, genders, the equity between... Uh, the old generation is the younger generation. It's uh, when we were talking uh, earlier about uh, happiness, uh, working life and uh, family life uh, and the balance uh, with, uh, with that, which is key, is something which is part of a sustainable vision behind. So it's also about human and to motivate him to move forward. The value of the company is made by people. It's not been made by yourselves. Being more than 15 employees, then I realized that uh, I was not able to run the company alone anymore. And if I wanted to reach the step I expected to reach, uh, my only solution is to convince people to go there and is to push people to come with me and to be the captain of the boat and get some new passenger on the road. And uh, and to attract new passengers, uh, people happiness, uh, yeah, is part of that sustainable vision. So B Corp has really helped us to think out of the box of the product only. Because with Jeremy, we were really product product focused when we launched the company, and with Vincent too. Um, and being B Corp certified in 2019 has changed the vision of sustainability for us and it gave us some pillars and some guidelines to move forward on different uh, topics mm. at the same time. Yeah. And uh, and each employee have a responsibility then to uh, implement and to bring his brick to the house 
to make sure that uh, tomorrow is always better than yesterday. Yeah. I We're running out of time, but I really wanted to talk a little bit about B Corp, but we, we don't have time. And so maybe one day you'll allow me to come back. Um, so let's just close up on a few, a few quick questions and lighter questions. So what's your favorite piece of sports or outdoor gear, but it can't be something from picture. Okay. <laughs> Cause that's too easy. Uh, my favorite piece. At least my garage is full of toy. Okay. Full of toys. So mountain bikes, road bikes, yeah. snowboard, ski, kitesurf. Uh, I think uh, there is more value in my garage than in my house. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it's good that your wife is this. <laughs> but uh, yeah, today uh, my best sports gear, uh, I would say my mountain bike. Okay. Okay. Because I'm using it all year round and and that's what I'm using the most. And I think for my um my self-confidence for my uh, trainings for everything yeah. I'm using my mountain bike yeah and when I want to sink out of the box usually I go for a three-hour ride it's so painful that I can just sink on my efforts and and some topics around the the job and I'm uh, I don't have too many uh feelings too many emotions coming in yeah. and it really helps me to yeah, to, to feel better and uh Okay. Yeah, I could imagine. Good for the good for the body and the mind, I'm sure. And what one book would you um encourage people to read uh if they're working in the sports and the outdoor industry? Is there one book that kind of inspires you or taught you something or to be honest, I'm just a comics writer. Uh, okay. I, I I have more than a thousand comics at my okay. home, so I'm a big, big fan of comics. In your garage? Uh, no. No, they're in the house. Uh, okay. I have it in the house now. Okay. <laughs> uh, and um, my favorite book is Lord of the Ring for one reason, because uh, it's about how somebody is uh, focused on reaching his goal, whatever can happen. And uh, and the trip of uh, Frodo Sake during the three books is uh, a real adventure in one side, uh, some uh, human meetings, human connection in the other side. And there is a big achievement at the end because he never gives up. And uh, and the way the book is wrote and the way the adventure is organized really make me feel about life in general, about running a company. And he's so true to himself. Uh, he has self-confidence, but uh, he's not cocky. And um, and he's really open to be helped and uh, he's, he has lots of determinations and and I really, I really feel that uh, that hero is the kind of entrepreneur I I want to look like. I, I'm sure I'm never going to get that answer again with that question. But that's a great great answer. A real the the real psychologically behind that. That's uh, that's great. So if today was the last day of your career, what would you say to your team? Let's go riding. Perfect. 
Okay, great. And if you could give future leaders of the in the sports and outdoor industry three pieces of advice, what would what would they be? Uh, I would say being very transparent on the goal of the company and the goal of themselves in the company so that there is no people who won't follow or we will have some like disappointment uh, at one stage. Uh, so that kind of transparency on uh, what's happening, but also on where it's going. So that's the first advice. Don't uh, feel guilty talking about money. If people are jealous, you don't care. Let them be jealous. But uh, you will be through to also uh, the role of a company. It's to make money, to feed some mouse, and also to do a little bit of profit. And that's life. And if people don't agree with it, uh, they have to work for GNO and, and period. So uh, transparency with the vision and with the goal. Um, talk about money easily and don't hide anything. And... Uh, and keep the passion. I know that when you sell toilet paper, it's harder than when you work in the outdoors. But for us in the outdoors, uh, being passionate, uh, being the consumer of our products, and uh, and being the value ourselves of the company is a is a big big uh, add value for all your staff yeah. because they will follow you because you trust deeply into the project. Brilliant. Great. Thank you very much, Julia. It's really been a pleasure talking to you. And I'm actually really sorry that it's it's gone so quickly because I had so many more questions that we didn't cover, but maybe we'll have another opportunity in a few years. But thank you very much. And, you know, I think uh, you and the whole team are doing an amazing job. So keep up the great work. And yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you, Dad. And I'm sure we'll see each other later for another interview. Absolutely. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode as much as I did. We love to read your feedback, so please leave your thoughts in the comments below. Thanks again for your support. See you soon, and don't forget to subscribe.